Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution, is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 2. The World Turned Upside Down. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I have to thank a new addition to the House of Lords, Andrin Baron Bieri. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Also, thank you to Viscount Discount for his very generous donation. Last week, we began Season 3 with a rundown of how people in the Three Kingdoms and beyond reacted to the execution of Charles I, and we ended with two of those kingdoms being proclaimed republics. The Parliament of England, what was left of it after Pride purged the House of Commons, and the Persh Commons abolished the House of Lords, declared the abolition of the monarchy in both England and Ireland. A new executive was established, the Council of State, which would govern but would be responsible to Parliament. The new system of government raised many questions, not least, what about the third Stuart Kingdom, Scotland? The Scots had proclaimed Charles II as their sovereign in the days between his father's execution and the proclamation of the English Republic, but the Kirk Party regime in Edinburgh was waiting to see if the king, formerly known as Prince Charles, would accept their conditions. Scotland had successfully carried out its own parliamentary revolution nearly a decade before, and Charles I had never accepted it. If Charles II could accept being a constitutional monarch, then Scotland would welcome him back and that would be a problem for England. But the abolition of the monarchy had also applied to Ireland, and while the Westminster Parliament claimed to hold authority over that kingdom too, in reality its reach was limited to Dublin and a few remaining outposts. Irish royalists and Irish confederates had finally joined forces, and until the Scots and the King came to an agreement, it was Ireland that posed the greatest threat to the new English Republic. If you've listened to season two, and remember the levellers and their proposed constitution, the Agreement of the People, you might have wondered why it didn't get mentioned last week. England established a new form of government without a king or a house of lords, but neither the original Agreement of the People, nor any of the revised versions of late 1648 or January 1649, were brought up. 
Surely it would have made sense for Parliament to pull a Blue Peter and reveal the constitution they'd made earlier, instead of making it up from scratch. One man who had asked himself the same question was famed leveller John Lilburn, and by the end of February he'd come up with an answer. England's new chains discovered. This was his latest pamphlet, railing against the new form of government and its fresh institutions as merely a front for an oligarchic, militaristic tyranny run by the army grandees and the rump parliament of Westminster. They were clinging to power for power's sake, and they were betraying the values which the civil wars had been fought and won for. In March, another noted pamphlet appeared, The Hunting of the Foxes. This condemned the rump parliament as, quote, a more absolute monarchy than before, end quote. The new regime was fragile, uncertain. As we mentioned last week, the selection of the Council of State was a deliberate message to the political nation. The decrepit institutions of monarchy in the upper house had been swept away, but that was as far as the new regime was going to go. To show this, the rump parliament refused to elect two of the more radical army grandees, Thomas Harrison and Henry Ireton, to the body. Many former members of the House of Lords were welcomed to the council, their noble titles left intact, and the final version of the oath didn't require councillors to approve of the revolutionary acts of either abolishing the House of Lords or killing the king. The political question had been satisfied, and going any further might open the door to the social question, and that was something few in the government had any desire to do. Certainly not Oliver Cromwell. As J.C. Davis describes it, quote, his instincts were to do everything possible to broaden the basis of support for the embattled regime, opening the doors to anyone willing to walk through them. The ideal of limited reform, not revolution, was reflected in the eventual composition of the rump, and the Council of State owed much to Cromwell's influence. End quote. This is all to say that the Council of State was determined to establish its position as the political centre, and to shut down any threat from either right, by which I mean royalists, or left, the levellers. Just to say, I'm using the terms left, right, and centre here for convenience. These weren't used at the time, but they're a helpful anachronism. The attacks on the new government by civilian levellers raised fears on the Council of State that army discipline might be threatened once again. Between the First and Second Civil Wars, civilian and army levellers joined forces in the Putney debates, and then in an aborted mutiny. The levellers had been defeated and appeased then, and a useful ally since, but now their objectives diverged, and they once again became a threat. So shortly after the publication of The Hunting of the Foxes, the leading levellers were quickly and efficiently arrested. John Lilburn was taken by soldiers in a dramatic dawn raid, and he was soon followed to prison by Overton, Walwyn, and Thomas Price, among others. But this clamp down on the left was accompanied by a similar display against the right, on the 6th of February, a second High Court of Justice had convened to put the leading royalist figures of the Second Civil War on trial. These included the Earl of Holland, captured after his and the Duke of Buckingham's failed uprising outside of London, Lord Norwich, formerly Lord Goring, a capable, if often drunk, commander who had been captured at the fall of Colchester, and Lord Capel, who had been captured alongside Norwich. And of course, the leading light of the Second Civil War, James Hamilton, Duke of Hamilton, the leader of the Scottish Engagers. The Revolutionary Court found these men guilty of treason, and on the 6th of March condemned them to death. Petitions for mercy were presented to the rump the following day, but Parliament refused to hear them. The day after that, more petitions arrived, 
including, for Norwich, one from 18 men on behalf of many others who the Lord owed money to. The surge in petitions convinced Parliament to put the question of a reprieve to a vote. One of the condemned, Sir John Owen, was saved by a vote of 28 to 23, which sounds close until we learn that Norwich's life came down to a tie, 24 to 24. Norwich's fate was decided by the Speaker of the House of Commons, William Lenthal, and he came down on a reprieve. Both Norwich and Owen were sent back to the Tower of London, until an official pardon was given to both on the 7th of May. No such close calls for Hamilton, Holland or Capel. Hamilton argued that an English court couldn't condemn him, because he was not an Englishman. How could he have committed treason against a parliament he owed no allegiance to? I think I'll call that the William Wallace gambit. Also, he'd been acting under the commands of the Scottish Parliament when he invaded, and he had surrendered under terms of quarter. None of these defences worked. Everyone knew that Hamilton had not just been following orders when he invaded England at the head of the Engager army. He'd been a dominant force in the Scottish government making the decision. And as to not being an Englishman, well, in addition to his Scottish titles, the Duke of Hamilton was also the Earl of Cambridge. So it was the Earl of Cambridge who was condemned. Hamilton, sorry, Cambridge, Holland and Capel were brought to the palace yard at Whitehall and beheaded. The new regime thus made it clear that supporting the royalist cause was a death sentence. Hamilton's brother, the Earl of Lanark, now became his brother's successor as the second Duke of Hamilton, and we'll hear more about him in the future. Looking back towards the left, the levellers had not gone away just because their leaders were in custody. Lilburn and the rest were no strangers to prison and could work from a cell as easily as they could from their own homes. By the end of April, leveller protests and marches throughout London and other large cities were very common. Attendees were decked out in sea-green ribbons, the colour now associated with the cause since the martyrdom of Thomas Rainsborough. These marches called for fresh elections, political reform, the taking up of the agreement of the people, and the release of political prisoners. Interestingly, these gatherings had a high proportion of women, which led to some pretty predictable reactions from MPs when, one day, they forced their way into the chamber. Early modern politics was not a welcoming place for the poorer sort, and absolutely not for women. One MP told the women to go home and wash their dishes. Another said that it was strange to see women petitioning, which got the quick response, quote, It was strange that you cut off the king's head, yet I suppose you will justify it, end quote. The sergeant-at-arms for Parliament then told the women to go home because this was too complex a subject for them to understand, and political questions were for men. Quote, Therefore, you are desired to go home and meddle with your housewifery. End quote. In the army, level of sympathies were on the rise yet again, driven by a lack of pay and resentment over impending Irish service. And if that sounds familiar, it should. These are the same reasons the army politicised back in 1647. I have to imagine that Denzel Halls, in exile in France, felt not a little bit of schadenfreude when he heard about the grandees' troubles. Wait, I hear you say, what's this about service in Ireland? Well, on the 15th of March, the Council of State agreed to form a military force to send to Ireland, under the command of Oliver Cromwell, to finally pacify the island, suppress the last significant outpost of royalism, avenge the atrocities of the Irish Rebellion of 1641, and secure the land needed to address the Adventurers Act. Passed in 1642, 
Vast sums of money were borrowed from private creditors in order to pay for an army to suppress the rebellion. The money would be paid back in the form of land confiscated from the rebellious Irish. Now, of course, that didn't go to plan, but now, nine years later, almost to the day that the Act received royal assent, England was finally united and stable enough to give Ireland some seriously unwelcome attention. This wasn't going to be merely reinforcements like had been sent in dribs and drabs over the years. This was to be a well-funded, well-supplied army of reconquest. An army of empire. Cromwell was to be given a force of 12,000 veterans, supplied with a war chest of £100,000 to pay them, with a huge artillery train of 56 cannon and 600 barrels of gunpowder, along with the cloves, food and other supplies needed to keep the army in action. Assembling this army and the supplies it needed would take time, and was the backdrop to the political drama over the following weeks. Because the danger from the left was not disappearing. In fact, the preparations for the Irish expedition were only heightening resentment among the rank and file. From April 1649, those regiments chosen for service in Ireland were picked by lot. If chosen by fate, any soldier who didn't want to go would not be forced to, but they would be drummed out of the army without pay. 300 infantry, picked for Ireland, threw down their weapons and demanded that leveller demands be accepted by the government. They were ignored, summarily cashiered out of the army, and their treatment only increased the unrest within the ranks. Harsher measures were settled upon. An example would be made. A young leveller soldier, Robert Lockyer, committed what Jonathan Healy calls a minor act of insubordination. This minor act turned out to be when Lockyer, along with 30 other troopers, refused to follow Colonel Wiley's orders, and seized the regimental colours. When Fairfax and Cromwell arrived on the scene, the mutineers backed down, and 15 were arrested. In calmer times, this might have meant the lash, or some of a painful but temporary punishment. These were not calmer times. Six of these men were sentenced to death. Cromwell reportedly begged for their lives from Fairfax, who was many things, but relaxed about the chain of command was definitely not one of them. Five were spared, but the sixth, Lockyer, was not. Lord Fairfax had the soldier marched into the churchyard of St Paul's Cathedral and summarily shot. This was meant to subdue the levellers, a warning shot into Lockyer's chest, to remind both army and civilian levellers that discipline in the army would be maintained. It did not. Fairfax had given the levellers another martyr. His funeral became a massive leveller demonstration, thousands strong, all decked out in sea green. The situation escalated as April led into May. When Colonel Scrope's cavalry regiment was selected to serve in Ireland and began marching to their muster, they got as far as Salisbury before leveller soldiers seized the regimental colours and elected new officers. Scrope attempted to restore order, but only about 80 men stood by him and he was forced to back off. The mutineers proclaimed that they would refuse to go to Ireland until their arrears of pay were answered by the government, a political settlement matching the agreement of the people was put into effect, and the elected Army Council of 1647 was restored. If you recall, after the Putney debates and the defeated level of mutiny, the Army Council became an invitation-only body, not elected. These demands resonated with the troops, and soon similar declarations were made by regiments commanded by Ireton, Reynolds, Harrison, and Skippen. And then another mutiny took place at Banbury. This was rapidly getting out of hand. 
When news of these mutinies reached London, security around the level of leadership in the Tower of London was increased, and Fairfax and Cromwell prepared to ride out of the capital. Cromwell mustered his forces at Hyde Park, but even at this muster, with his most loyal men, some of them answered the call wearing sea-green ribbons in their hats. Leveller influence was everywhere. Cromwell, however, won them over with a fairly generous offer. Any who were not willing to fight the mutineers, to fight their own comrades, could be discharged with pay. In the end, Cromwell and Fairfax marched out of London, leading two regiments of cavalry and three of infantry. This was far too large a force for the mutineers to contend with, and they faced desertions as they retreated over a number of days. Eventually, Cromwell and Fairfax caught up with the remaining rebels at the town of Burford in Oxfordshire. A midnight attack into the town led to their quick surrender, and 300 prisoners were kept in the parish church. Almost all of them were pardoned, except for the three examples that had to be made. One Corporal Perkins, Cornet Thompson, and Private Church were marched out into the churchyard, lined up against the wall, and summarily shot. They were buried in the same place they died, alongside the revolutionary hopes of the levellers. The remaining disorders were dealt with, either peacefully or by the sword, and by the 25th of May, Cromwell was able to report to the rump that the army levellers had been suppressed. Further revolution, political or social, was not going to come from that direction. Let me recommend another history podcast on the Airwave Network. History Uncovered is a conversation podcast from Kalina Fraga and Austin Harvey, staff writers from allthatsinteresting.com. History Uncovered has more than 100 episodes on everything historical, from disasters to unsolved true crime mysteries to folklore and the paranormal. Kalina and Austin also have a monthly History Happy Hour, which is a really interesting look at new discoveries from the world of academic history and archaeology. Explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world's past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Let me recommend another history podcast on the Airwave Network. Historical Blindness attempts to shed some light on historical blind spots and fight the misinformation that permeates many people's worldview. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false beliefs today? Join host Nathaniel Lloyd as he delves into all these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy claims, like those surrounding the notorious assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and JFK. Discover astonishing parallels to modern politics. What does the false claim that AIDS was a US bioweapon tell us about the COVID lab leak conspiracy theory? Find and subscribe to Historical Blindness wherever you listen to your podcasts, or visit historicalblindness.com. Now, a good question to ask is why a mass movement in favour of further revolution didn't happen. Because on the surface, circumstances seemed perfect for one. The economic situation had not really improved. There'd been yet another poor harvest. People were struggling to find work and buy food. Mass demonstrations in London were common. The new regime was incredibly shaky, and its legitimacy needed to be built from the ground up. 
The Rump Parliament was anything but representative of the people of England, with just a fraction of constituencies having a voice in it, and even they were based on the highly limited franchise from before the war. The army was kept together mostly by the personal authority of Cromwell and Fairfax, and despite their swift reactions to mutiny, they couldn't be everywhere. The post-regicide system could have easily fallen to a civilian level of uprising combined with sympathetic mutineers in the army. But it didn't, and here's a few possible reasons why. The harvest might have been bad, but economic developments, even unpopular ones like enclosure and the specialisation of crops, meant that for as many drawbacks as it had for individuals who struggled to find work, and there were many, especially in the war-ravaged north, the improvements in efficiency meant that a bad harvest did not become a famine. The government was also aware of the danger, and had expanded social programmes which provided food and fuel to the most needy. Local authorities were granted greater powers to respond to food shortages in their areas, and price caps were implemented with harsh punishments for profiteers. Things were bad for many ordinary people, but not so bad that a popular uprising became seen as the only way forward especially after the rump passed a new treason act in May, which made it treasonous to say that the new regime was not legitimate, and it was followed by the suppression of the major leveller news pamphlets. The rump, under advice and pressure from the grandees, quickly passed laws to keep the rank and file on side, like ones which provided support for war widows and wounded soldiers. This helped keep the discontent in the army from becoming more than just isolated outbursts of disobedience. The Leveller cause had many friends in high places, including Parliament and the London Common Council, a legacy of the political crises of the past two years. If they had coordinated with the Levellers out in the streets, things could have been very different. But as a rule, these men did not rally to Lilburn's cause in the spring of 1649. Partly, this can be explained by personal ambition. These men had been Levellers, some of them leading Levellers, but now they were in power and part of the system which further revolution would threaten. Partly, we can see that some of these men agreed wholeheartedly with the political aims of Lilburn and the wider level of movement, but were worried about the Pandora's box his cause might open. If the political question was resolved with universal suffrage, or near as damn it, then the rabble might start asking the social question. Better to keep a lid on things now, before it spiralled out of control, but also, there's a practical reason why Leveller sympathisers in power didn't coordinate to enforce Leveller demands on the shaky regime. Democracy was all fine and dandy, but what if the people voted for the wrong thing? The Republic was brand new, and its enthusiastic supporters could be fitted on the head of a pin. Introducing a constitution like the Agreement of the People, or even calling for fresh elections to the existing Parliament, risked the people of England electing men who would throw down the Republic and invite Charles II to take his throne. In this view, the rump was a necessary evil, restraining any self-destructive impulses among the public until the clear benefits of the Republic could be shown. In a sense, these men were more politically astute or cynical than Lilburn. If Lilburn had his way, a true democracy would be established, which would immediately vote itself out of existence. Better to wait for people to see what a kingless life was like before risking all the revolution's progress. This did open the government up to the charge of hypocrisy. For all their rhetoric about true sovereignty coming from the people, they were refusing to trust that people with that sovereignty. And it's certainly true. 
but many of the men in the government were sincere believers that representative government was the best thing for England. It's just that England wasn't ready for it yet. It's a contradiction of principles which will hang over many revolutionary governments ever since. But the levellers of Lilburn were far from the only people raising questions about the future government. Throwing monarchy down, which had been the central point of political society for centuries, offered the chance to build something different in its place. It's time to introduce one of the most interesting figures of the English Revolution, Gerard Winstanley, and the true levellers, or the diggers. On the 1st of April 1649, a group of people gathered on the common at St George's Hill in Surrey, and after renaming the hill just George's Hill, because they didn't care for saints, they started digging. Together they would work, sharing the burdens of labour as well as its rewards equally. Their leader, though perhaps that's the wrong term, so let's call him the most influential of their group, was Gerard Winstanley. Winstanley had once been a merchant tailor, buying and selling textiles, and what records we have indicate that he was not particularly prosperous, but was able to live comfortably with a large household, so far better than most. But this left him vulnerable to shifts in the market, say, the collapse of Irish trade following the rebellion and the outbreak of civil war in England. By the end of 1643, he was ruined, and he left London to move closer to his in-laws in Surrey. The next five years are, as one biographer has complained, quote, crucial for Winstanley's spiritual development, but the process is frustratingly difficult to reconstruct, end quote. We know he moved to the village of Cobham, and we know that Cobham was divided between the haves and the have-nots, the landless labourers and the yeoman farmers who hired them. At one point, Winstanley abandoned the mainstream Church of England and became fervently anti-clerical in his views. He took part in a symbolic protest over manorial rights, where he and seven others dug up peat and turf from unused but not unowned land. Over the winter of 1647-48, Winstanley suffered a second financial collapse and a deep depression, and when he emerged from both, he'd become a true radical in both politics and religion. He argued that the land was God's land, given to all as a common treasury. Everyone should receive, quote, a just portion for each man to live, so that none need to beg or steal, end quote. This movement would spread over the next couple of years, with digger communities appearing in multiple counties, and usually facing local resistance, official and unofficial alike, sometimes leading to violence. Winstanley would not be silenced, however, and he will continue to campaign for people to, quote, work together, eat bread together. Despite the name True Levellers and some shared members, John Lilburn and the leadership of the Ordinary Levellers vehemently denied any connection to those they considered maniacs. The diggers' calls for the abolition of property rights and the redistribution of wealth were beyond even Lilburn's radicalism. He wanted political reform and wider suffrage for the people, and better circumstances for the poor would surely follow, but outright calling for the abolition of property was a step too far. But don't think that this focus on the political fringes, left and right, leveller and royalist, means that there weren't those in the centre who, for one reason or another, tried to make the current situation work. One such example, highlighted by Healy, is Francis Thorpe. Thorpe came from the Yorkshire gentry, and he'd gone into law. He'd clashed with the Earl of Strafford during the personal rule, and then acted as a witness at his trial. During the Civil War, he'd been one of the recruiter MPs, elected to fill the gaps made by Royalist members of Parliament who'd left. 
Thorpe supported the independents and the new model army, and so survived Pride's purge with his seat intact. But though he was appointed as a commissioner in Charles I's trial, he never attended the event and he never signed the death warrant. In this new world, under this new regime, he was sent to oversee the Assizes, and effectively make the case for the Republic. This was especially important in the execution of justice. Previously, even when at war with Charles, the king had still been the centre of the legal system, the authority from which all justice flowed. But there was no king now, just a newborn republic. So Thorpe opened the Yorker's eyes with a speech which acknowledged that, essentially, this was all new to him too. They were all going to have to work this out together. He called on the central pillar of the new regime's legitimacy, that all power came from the people. They could, quote, let the government run into what form it will, monarchy, aristocracy, or democracy. Yet still, the original fountain thereof is from the consent and agreement of the people, end quote. For now, the rump parliament claimed that consent, but the tiny number of MPs it now contained was the Achilles' heel of their legitimacy. To cap off the royalist efforts, in the north, the final major royalist holdout of Pontefract Castle finally capitulated on the 27th of March. General John Lambert, who had been overseeing the siege since late 1648, came to an agreement with Colonel John Morris, the royalist commander. The garrison was given quarter, with the exception of six men, including Morris. Then came a strange quirk of early modern honour. Those six men were given both the opportunity to escape and a head start. The general promised that if any of the men could break through his siege lines and get more than five miles away from Pontefract, they would not be pursued any further and allowed to go into exile. This sounded great to Morris, who was well aware of the most likely fate he'd face if he stayed. Morris and a young cornet called Michael Blackbourne managed to get away. They dodged through the waiting parliamentarian soldiers and got way beyond the five-mile limit, but then, to Lambert's apparent disgust, Parliament overruled his clemency and ordered the fugitives pursued, and they were captured in Lancashire and taken to Lancaster Castle. From there, they were taken to the York Assizes, overseen by Thorpe, and found guilty of treason. Despite appeals for clemency from across the political spectrum, and a daring escape attempt which only failed because Morris refused to leave Blackbourne behind, both men were put to death on the 23rd of August. The last embers of the Second Civil War were finally snuffed out. On the 19th of May, 1649, nearly four months after executing the King, the abolition of the House of Lords, and the proclamation of a Republic, the Republican Commonwealth of England was formally declared by Act of Parliament, quote, Be it declared and enacted by this present Parliament and by the authority of the same, that the people of England, and of all the dominions and territories thereunto belonging, are and shall be and are hereby constituted, made, established, and confirmed to be, a commonwealth and free state, and shall from henceforth be governed as a commonwealth and free state by the supreme authority of this nation, the representatives of the people in Parliament, and by such as they shall appoint and constitute as officers and ministers under them for the good of the people, and that without any king or house of lords. This was the formal birth of the Commonwealth of England, and besides finally giving me a name to call it, other than the regime, the government, or the republic, 
the wording of that act is important. Quote, all the dominions and territories thereunto belonging. This included Wales, which had been a formal part of England for more than a century, but the Rump Parliament was absolutely including what it saw as its subordinate neighbour, Ireland. Next week, we will follow Oliver Cromwell to Ireland, and all that follows. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Marquess of Ludlow, Nick Robinson, and the Earl of Kildare, Nick Bunker. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.